Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Hi everyone and welcome back to BFR Radio. Today I've got a guest finally on the podcast. Welcome Nathan Norris all the way from the UK. Hi, thanks for having me on. Our last podcast I did an episode on BFR in youth athletes and this is a question that came up a few times from some different people out there sent me some emails and look, there's not a lot of information out there so I put my first podcast out there. Nath actually commented and I reached out to him so I was really glad he was able to because I really see great value in practitioners and athletes coming on the podcast because I think their stories are invaluable. So when he reached out, I grabbed it with two hands and brought him on board. So just as a little bit of a background to everyone out there who doesn't know you, Nath, can you give a small background about how you got into S&C and, and currently what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, yeah, so I've kind of been an S&C coach for about 10 years or so. I did a sports science degree, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I played basketball growing up um, and so I kind of had a passion for sport, but wasn't sure what I was going to do. Hit about my late 20s and really started to question what I wanted to do for a career. And that was around kind of 2010, 2012 kind of time. And that's when I kind of managed to access an internship. We were living in Sheffield at the time. And that was working in a professional rugby league team there with uh, Nick Ward, who's over in Altus now as the director of performance. Worked there underneath him for a couple of years as an academy S&C coach, leading the program for the academy squad there before moving to Newcastle, where I worked in the private sector under a coach called Tulare Hamilton. We had the contract for... England golf's regional squads, as well as working with a lot of endurance athletes. And then about two and a half years ago, I took the role moving to the northwest of England as the lead strength and conditioning coach at um, a college called Burnley College, where it's a further education college working with 16 to 18 year olds, but also does some degrees. So working up to students up to the age of 21. And I run the strength and conditioning program there. So working with student athletes who compete regionally, nationally or internationally in their sports and providing their strength and conditioning provision whilst they're studying at the college, as well as we deliver some external contracts in the region as well. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was actually thinking about the value of your role with younger athletes, I think is so important. I think a lot of people, even I was guilty of when I first wanted to become an S&C coach that I just wanted to work in pro sports. But as you know, I've been doing this for quite some time now. And when I see a lot of athletes coming through to me and I go, you know, you can't even do two sets of 10 push-ups. And therefore, I see the huge value in your role in that 16, even in the younger age groups. What are you seeing in the industry or what are you seeing with the athletes you're working with? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a really key time Personally, I believe. I think often 14, 16 years old, their, their talent has often got them so far in their sport, but their kind of athletic ages, unless they're in a sport like maybe rugby league or rugby union, where there's more of a synergy with resistance-based training and things like that, often the strength and conditioning training isn't as commonplace. So their training age within athletic development is severely lacking. And even just having the competency to move optimally or to be able to be familiar with exercises or programs that will develop strength and power for that relevant for their sport is, is lacking 
But what I think you f- I find with this age range is their passion for the sport has got them as far as they are. They're, you know, so I mentioned a minute ago about working with swimmers. They'll often be training six to eight times a week as well as studying, as well as doing their land training with us. Like they're not getting paid to do that. It's their passion for the sport. So I think at this age, you can tap into that and really help. They're keen to basically learn whatever they can. It's almost like they're, they're so young and they're a massive sponge that they'll absorb anything up in in a good way. They can absorb the wrong things as well, but like you're able to kind of direct them within that and as to the, the best ways to train or help them hone their skills and develop their athletic performance. So I kind of see it as a bit of a privilege to invest in them at, at such a key age. And to and me and the team I lead, the, the, the view we have is that however long they're in our college for, we're trying to take them from where they are within that athletic development to their next stage before they move on wherever they go next, whether that's university and then into a strength conditioning program there, whether that's on into uh, the NGB setup that they're in already and kind of like prepare them for the next stage of their athletic development and the coaches that they'll be working with at that stage. That's a really great view to have with train those athletes. And we'll get to BFR in a, a minute and because when people start talking about what they're actually doing, it, it intrigues me and, you know, questions start flowing for me. What kind of challenges do you think are facing athletes in that age group and how, if there are different challenges you feel, how are you mitigating these and, and responding to them? Yeah, I think probably one of the biggest challenges is it's almost like a two sides of the same coin. So from my perspective and in my experience, 16 they're starting to become independent. They're starting to have their own ideas and views. And certainly over in the UK, 17, they're learning to drive, so they're getting independence. At 18, they're starting to discover pubs and going out and clubs and such other things. So there's more things coming into their lives. And these aren't the only things, but where their independence gets to grow and they get to kind of discover themselves. That's a brilliant thing, but that also can distract. So what we often see is, with those that come in is those who are really driven kind of almost continue really driven and almost dig even deeper into their sport and into their training and into excelling as much as possible those who were kind of like not really sure as some of those distractions and it can be other things or some of those interests even come along maybe start to wane a little bit and then there's those people who sit kind of in the middle who could go either way and so with those who uh, are in our program, who are at the other end, who maybe are not as interested at times, it's trying to, uh, I guess, what's the low-hanging fruit we can get from them to help them within their sport and to, and to help to support their their kind of their, their technical coaches with what they're trying to achieve. And the ones that are on the kind of on the fence, as it were, for want of a better phrase, it, um, a lot of what we try and do is come alongside them. So we're not just there to. So they train with us. The athletes we work with train with us tw- at least twice a week. So. We're not just there to run them through a session and then get them out, but we try and make sure we get to know them, that they feel invested in. Basically, look to create a culture that, that they feel a part of. So we might have, um, as I say, a swimmer training with a, at the same time as a golfer, at the same time as an ice skater, at the same time as a skier. So they're all in different sports. You know, there'll be a two or three coaches on the floor, depending on the numbers, but they're all going through programs specific to their sports, but also to their athletic development. So they kind of get to know each other. And I think within what we found is those who weren't really sure whether they were going to go further in this sport or not it's helped it's not always you know but often what we found is it's helped them buy into actually the role of athletic uh, development and help them buy into investing into their own personal development and and developing their character as well as their kind of athletic performance 
So what I guess I'm hearing here is, is that firstly, it's about relationships, which is, I, yeah. th- I think, a common theme that a lot of coaches have been around for quite some time. It is about the sets and the reps, but it's the relationships that you form with the athletes. And then also it's creating that training environment where you sounds like you have a lot of individual sports and creating, I guess, a team environment within that sport, but also within a collective group of sports so that you know, I always say the gym needs to be your safe place where you can come in, you can fail, you can train hard. And, and you know, it, it's not about, you know, I have to do three sets of five perfectly. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think... Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. completely agree. I think the stuff I learned when I was working in rugby league, about the camaraderie that you see within a squad, how they all train together, they all motivate each other. And they're often on similar or the same program, depending on their position things. They all get around each other and, and really egg each other on. And it was just part of the, the camaraderie of the team. So it's look, we've tried to, and I've tried to create that within this more individualistic setting. But it is, for me, people first, so we have to invest in them. Uh, it's a really key impressionable age where if we say a harsh word, it probably cuts deeper than those who are older because they're still at such a young, vulnerable age. They know what they're doing, but it's that, Again, it's that toss-up between their independence and their growing independence, them thinking with the greatest respect that they know everything, but they've still got a lot to learn, but they need to make those decisions and make those mistakes and make those uh, choices for themselves, but trying to help them within that and support them within that. Um, and sometimes that might look in a training session, you know, they'll come in, we might get someone in like a cyclist or whatever, and, and they've arrived late because something's happened within one of their deadlines or, or an exam or something. And they want to train, but their head's not in the, in the right place. So we'll work with them within that rather than being like, this is the exact thing we're doing and you have to stay with us because they maybe need to get back to their lesson and things have overrun or whatever else. So it's trying to support them within the context of what means they get the most out of it, but they feel invested in as well. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating comment you made there and some points you've brought forward in relation to that. So although this is BFR Radio, I do think coaching and even coaching of BFR is really important because of, I guess, some of the stigma that potentially is out there with, with some people or some people create around it. But I think just in terms of coaching in general, I think that for me, that really fascinates how people create those environments. And I think it's, it's an, something we're not typically taught at university and that we, we tend to, I guess, sometimes have to make mistakes or we have really great mentors that lead us to that point where we can create those great environments because we're we're copying what they're doing and then we're involving that ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think people like to say like buy-in, uh, you know, use the phrase buy-in in, in a buzz term. But I think really the truth within buy-in is if you're going to create buy-in, is people need to feel valued, invested in. And to one of a better phrase, feel loved, feel valued in being a part of what they're in and listen to. I'm not saying we get it right perfectly every time. Uh, that would be wrong, but that's what we're trying to do is basically invest in those we work with and and i think when you invest in them they, they buy into what you're trying to do because they feel that you value them not just the commodity of having the numbers that, that justify the, the strength and conditioning program at the college or, or whatever that might be in, in the context that someone else might work in that's really great you know feeling loved feeling valued that's fantastic yeah it's and- really important so the segue into BFR, feeling loved and valued and obviously creating that trust within the environment you work in. I just spoke about the blood flow restriction. For some people, there is that stigma 
around it. But we're going to speak about the positives of BFR because all good practitioners, are, because they have great relationships with their clients or our athletes, are able to have those conversations and, and work it in. So a little bit of background about how did you first get into BFR and, and then just evolve the story into what you're currently doing in your setting. Yeah, sure, no problem. I've been aware of and was conscious of BFR training for a number of years, but hadn't accessed the research or the guidance, really. I was aware of the research, but how does that apply practically within the setting that I'm working in? And I think that can be applied to to all areas of strength and conditioning, but within BFR, that was kind of a question I, I had. Each country is having different lockdowns. And as we hit the first lockdown in March 2020 here, the, the program that I'd set up had been going for about six to eight months and, and I was starting to get a feel for what was going on and what we were lacking and what we needed and maybe where some of the gaps were. So I used that time to try and figure out what are the genuine gaps we have and, and what training modalities can we bring in that will help within that. And um, so I started listening to some podcasts uh, specifically on BFR and one of them was when I came across yourself on Pacey Performance, which uh, was really helpful. And I actually think I reached out to you on Instagram and then messaged you and, and, and asked for if you could advise where I could get some more information on the kind of guidance of, of, of how you would recommend going about things. And not that you knew I was going to say this, but then use basically your website and all the research, some of the guidance that you had on there to start to upskill myself, but also all the team that I have around me. That So I have a team of four of us, myself and three of the coaches that I lead. And we started to kind of dig deeper. So use that as our kind of like springboard into this area um, of digging deeper of how would this apply within our context? Because what we were noticing was that a lot of our youth athletes, so that let's say it's sprinters, the tracks had shut, so they couldn't get onto the track. Although they might be doing sessions, it might be on the road or on grass, you couldn't always guarantee that the sprint sessions that they were doing were of the highest caliber because their coaches weren't allowed to work with them. So we had a lot of people rushing back into competitions that opened at the end of 2020, the end of that season, trying to get up to their peak speed. As we were thinking about those things, and, and that's where I started to wonder, is this something we can begin to bring in and use? As I mentioned before, I've kind of played basketball at a, well, in this country, an okay-ish level compared to Europe or Australia, a pretty poor level. A few years on, 20 years on, I'm uh, occasionally have Achilles problems and things like that. So I decided that what I was going to do was first off, try out some of this stuff on myself. So I was aware of obviously how BFR benefits for strength and for hypertrophy, but within this age range, particularly 16 to 18 year olds and, and then 18 to 21 year olds, I didn't massively feel, not that I'm against them using it for hypertrophy or strength, but their training ages are often quite young that they haven't necessarily elicited all the neural adaptions and and physiological adaptions from just normal resistance training, never mind bringing, you know, the addition of BFR in. I think it's massively important, but their training ages were so young, I didn't feel that was necessary. So it was more thinking about if we're going to use this, if we're going to use this form of training, how does it apply within our context? And we had a swimmer who was like national level uh, swimmer who decided at the end of 2020, uh, yeah, summer of 2020, so the end of his first year with us, of the college that he was going to stop swimming but he's going to focus on triathlon and because he was such a good swimmer and his dad was a triathlon coach it turned out that as he started training he was on the cusp of gb trials 
think it's under 21s or under 23s. So he wasn't in that squad, but he was kind of like good enough that he could maybe make the times to then go for the trials and things. But what we found, what we realized very, very quickly as he was doing this training was basically he's a swimmer. He hadn't done much running. So sure enough, as most of us would know, his Achilles started to really flare up badly. But he was, he's a really lovely guy, um, but he's also a little bit too cool for school and wouldn't let on how much pain he was in. So he'd come in and train, but he wouldn't tell us. So obviously we review with every athlete before they start training with us, but wouldn't tell us what was going on or how much pain he was in until one of uh, my coaches, Sam, commented how much he would walk in hobbling. But then as he got into the gym, he'd try and mask it. And it was just because he'd seen him coming in a few times and noticed him hobbling in. And he'd try and mask it. So we dug a little bit deeper and tried to get into what was going on there. And I was playing around with the BFR stuff for my Achilles at the time and had seen a pretty instant turnaround in pain first thing in the morning, that type of stuff, a little bit of stiffness. Or if I was doing a lot of kind of sprint type work, it might be a bit inflamed and things like that. And it, it seemed to have resolved that. And it's very anecdotal, but it was just, I thought, I'll try it on myself. And it was things like doing loaded calf raises or even just tempo bodyweight calf work and then focusing on the gastrox and then the soleus as well as a little bit of isometric work on the ankle and I noticed that it was really only a couple of times a week I was doing it for a couple of sets that it made a massive difference and I'm not training particularly hard other than for my own enjoyment so it's not like I'm putting in the hours some of the students I work with are so I, I made a decision we'll use him as a bit of a guinea pig he had an older training age he was 17 soon to be turning 18 so we we tried it out on him basically first with his consent with his parents consent to see what would happen basically because he was getting to a point where on his runs he couldn't run uphill he would have to walk because the pain in the achilles would get so severe so with with respect to this athlete the protocol was the same as what you did twice a week cuffs on isometric work straight leg bent knee calf raises yes yeah, so we went for 50 percent maximum occlusion and cuffs on around the top of the legs and we basically started about 20 below that 50 percent score yeah 20 millimeters sorry below that that kind of score what we did was we started with calf in his pre-activation work which is early on in his program calf raises straight leg focusing on eccentric loading but body weight based so it's like a single leg tempo calf raises we deflated the cuffs in between because I didn't have a problem with them being on the whole time, but because I'd never used them with this age of athlete before, I didn't want to just slap them on and just keep the kind of pressure the whole time. Obviously, we were looking, keeping an eye on some of the signs of whether his, his VMO was turning blue or, you know, was the pinky kind of ready color we wanted and all those types of things and what score he was giving us. But because, as I say, he's a bit too cool for school, we were looking for six, seven out of 10, but he would. If sometimes if he was in pain with something, he still wouldn't, not with BFR now, but he wouldn't say, he'd kind of play it down. So we were aware, we needed to know him basically and know how he ticked and try and read between the lines. We got him to wear them when he was doing his walking patterns because his foot mechanics weren't great. So uh, things like the toe walks, heel walks, heel to toe walks, A marches, that type of stuff. So there's things that were obviously calf raises are active, but things where we've got calf and Achilles as well as dorsiflexion, plantar flexion through the foot. So the plantar fascia is also kind of like being used as it were in loading, loading up the big toe and trying to make sure that, that those patterns were, were optimal and correct whilst wearing the cuffs. 
for me, you're ticking all the right boxes here. And for other people who this might be the first podcast that they're listening to, what Nath has done here is just spot on. So if we're doing lower body work, we've still got the cuffs on our thighs. And that's really important to understand. We don't put them on the calves because there's actually, there's a proximal and distal effect to the cuff and the BFR work that we do. And it's really about exercise selection. And that is key. And, and I've said that in numerous podcasts and with other people and everything that I put out there. So what he's been able to do, he's recognized the movements, the calf raises, the isometric holds, the slow eccentrics. And I think what you've done beautifully is you've started at where he's at, at his level yeah. at, at body weight. And, and then the other thing which you did do is, is then you started talking about when you're talking about, I was thinking about an athlete that I coach and she has issues with her big toe tendon. And I just got her to do, basically it was a, a bent knee calf raise in a lean forward in an acceleration type position and just yeah. moving through the range of movement. And I said, just humor me for a minute. After the first set, the pain had gone from an eight to about a, about a four. Second set, pain had totally gone. And the look of amazement on her face was priceless you know i wish i would have captured that on on video of some sort never did but i think what you're doing there is is it we're taking advantage of decreasing or attenuating pain in the tendon i think is, is really important and then you're using that in the motor pattern so decreasing the pain getting rid of that and then focusing on really good running patterns and then if you have someone who is too cool for school i love that saying uh, <laughs> especially in that age group because they all you know especially blokes they want to be tough or their understanding of what you know if you were using the scale of one out of ten what a true seven out of ten is they may not understand that concept yet so you're using skin color as a feedback making sure that's a nice dark reddish color and if it's blue or purple she's too tight and the other one is capillary refill time so what you can do is just press the vmo should turn white and within around three seconds or maybe four seconds if it's really cold weather, it should come back to that nice dark reddish color. Fabulous work. And then how many times a week was this athlete doing this type of work? Yeah, so only twice a week. The calf raises and walking patterns, as I say, they were early on in their program. So the new mobility pre-activation core strength. And so it was just after the mobility work in their pre-activation. And then the isometric work we would do at the end of his strength stuff, loaded barbells or safety bar squats, safety bar squat bar, sorry, in the calf raise position, single leg, bent knee, straight leg, that type of stuff. Or we've got an isometric mid-thigh pull rack. We might do more of like overcoming ISOs as it got better. We were desperate to get as much feedback from him as possible. He wasn't always great at giving that feedback because of just his, his personality and things like that. As lovely a guy as he is, but what we saw was that sometimes we'd come in very much hobbling, probably about by about a month in. So we'd probably done, you know, two sessions a week, about eight sessions. He just casually one day is doing his walking patterns with the cuffs on and just kind of casually leans over and basically says, oh, I, you know, I managed to run my fastest 5K the other day. And just like in passing. And I'm like, right, that's that's fairly big deal considering you were walking up hills a month ago. And obviously I'm aware this, is all anecdotal within our context. But we're then thinking, okay, something's happening here. Then because of where we are and our campus is kind of the college campus, we have to see the students outside of the, the gym environment just wandering around. And 
and one of my other coaches, Angus, commented about how he had seen him and he was like jumping and running around and messing about, uh, like just being uh, being a lad, basically nothing nothing wrong with that. But he wasn't hobbling them, so we were like, this is interesting. Some of the behaviours that he wasn't doing before because he was limited, but he was trying to cover it. He's starting to just be a you know move around however he wants to. By about eight weeks in, he was saying that his pain running, if he was doing hills sessions, because this was another challenge within his triathlon coaching, what they were prescribed, would be a, a four to a three, but that would be at the end of the session. So we were like, okay, so we're making progress. At least he's not walking up, up, up hills now and in blinding pain. By about 10 to 12 weeks, he earmarked a competition, which was like a trials selection competition. And, and at that point, he basically was pain-free. Sets and reps-wise, we started with just really, really simple two sets of 10, two sets of 15 on the calf raises, just slowly introduced it. And then we built up to three sets of 15, and then we started to introduce some low loads, just like a five kilo, 10 kilo weight vest on top of him. And then went after the more the typical ranges of a set of 30, you know, 15, 15, 15. But what we did was when we felt he was getting to that point, we then over the weeks increased the cuff pressure to where it should have been for him at 50% maximum occlusion. We were constantly tweaking things forwards, but then trying not to run too far forwards with it and seeing how he was feeling. January 2021 here, we had a lockdown again for a few months, which meant all the tracks were closed. But then everything opened up in April and suddenly all the athletic competitions are on and coaches are wanting their sprinters and their jumpers to be basically operating like kind of a peak performance, having not done as much training as they could do because the tracks weren't open. And as we were working with this lad, who was the swimmer turned triathlete, we had a couple of sprinters who started to then present with hamstring tightness and grade one tears, that type of thing, grade two tears. So because we were seeing such good feedback from him, it was a little bit like, what are we kind of waiting for? We found a way of working with this age range. Others had seen him because they're all training at the same time, seeing him using them and had seen the benefits. The next one was a, a, was a female sprinter. She was less adverse to it because she'd seen it being used already because they're so inquisitive at this age. Um, they like they like shiny things. So if you bring something out like that, or I don't know, you bring out a, a VBT device and put that up, then they, you know, they just they're drawn to it, like computer screens or you know iPads or phone screens and things like that. So it wasn't as intimidating to then say, actually, what we're going to try is we're going to try some of this BFR training to help your hamstring where it keeps kind of like cramping or flaring up, or you seem to be carrying a mild strain that presents itself when you're doing your max velocity training and really just built it from there and it kind of evolved from there really. You're hot on it at the moment. Let's continue on the hamstrings. This is a yeah. a hot topic. Uh, I trained a decathlete who went to Tokyo and he tore his hamstring and within two weeks we got him sprinting at 95% of his maximum, accelerating over 30 and then holding for another 30 and then that next week he competed in in 10 whole events so i know the value of it but if you could share a few things and expand on that hamstring that that'd be really great for yeah, yeah, for myself course. actually yeah. selfishly yeah, yeah. i think sometimes it's good to have a go and see and what the what's the worst that happens is it doesn't work obviously we're working within the remits of of the guidance so it's not like we're doing really 
dangerous things. We're trying to have a go, but for their benefit, not for my ego and not for my benefit, but for their benefit. And what we decided to do was we worked out her maximum inclusion, 50% of that, and then started again 20 or so below that. And then what we did with her was we used a combination of, we looked at foot mechanics and and calf work but we did that without the cuffs what we did was put the cuffs again on the top of the thigh and basically started with things yielding isometrics and trying to see single leg wise unilaterally wise could she hold those positions but at different knee flexions so at 90 degrees at you know not quite 180 but you know different degree flexions and holding for around 30 seconds of that when she was when she was coming in with the the feelings of this kind of tightness or tear so is that a single leg squat or a split squat position? Oh, or... uh, sorry, my apologies. In a hamstring bridge. So on her back, in a hamstring bridge position. So she'd be lying prone on the floor on her back. And then what she would bridge through her through her foot uh, and through her toes with her knee nearly fully extended, which meant that the hamstring was activated, but she were also activating the calf as well. And, and she was cuffed within those kind of yielding isometrics as well. And that, that they were done unilaterally. So we did both legs but we did them unilaterally. We introduced them at the beginning of her program, early on, uh, before she went into the, the core and strength and, uh, and power work that she was doing. And then at the end of her strength work, we used the cuffs to do some low level eccentric work. I call them hamstring sliders. So where you push yourself up into a glute bridge position, and then you slide the legs out, you have either on a slide board or something like that, and you slide the legs out. So we started, Bilaterally with them both, she was cuffed again for these points. And we started with just just really low level, three sets of eight, three sets of 10. And then when she felt like she had the control in her hamstring, because uh, the feedback she was giving us was that in the yielding isometrics, she could hold the position. But when she was doing the eccentric work, particularly she would feel bilaterally, she would feel, I think it was her right hamstring, she would feel it kind of almost switch off as it got into full extension as a knee got it was getting close to full extension so what we did was we got her to slow the tempo of them down basically and go to the point where she was feeling it for want of a better phrase switch off i know it doesn't switch off but you know where she felt like she'd lost control and her left hamstring was doing all the work once she was starting to exhibit control through the full range of that kind of hamstring slider we then started to introduce it unilaterally so again single leg glute bridge with a foot underneath uh, with a slide board kind of mat underneath her foot and her slowly lowering that out um, under somewhere around five second eccentric focus and then introduce load to that so loaded the hips with power bags like that 10 kilos 15 kilos and we what we did with them is we kept the rep range lower so i know often with bfr the rep range is higher but we wanted to go after strength a bit more with her. So we stayed around, because it was so eccentrically focused, we stayed around three sets of six to eight to 10, particularly when we were introduced in the low. And we didn't really climb any higher than that because I didn't think 30 reps of single leg hamstring sliders was going to be possible. <laughs> um, I wouldn't like to try and do it. And I'm pretty sure that probably after 10, my next 20 wouldn't be good quality. I'd just be falling to the ground each time and she'd probably be the same, although she'd probably try her best. A couple of points that I just want to tease out there, which I absolutely loved. And you're really speaking to me here in terms of how you've been able to apply BFR, which makes me really happy to hear is that typically when we look at all these academic papers, they're not dealing with elite athletes or even sub-elite athletes. So typically recreational, there's this 
thing around the 75 rep protocol where you need to do really high reps. And yes, if you're doing low load strength training with relatively untrained subjects. However, you've got a different cohort of people that you're working with. You have They have different strength levels, different needs. And you're also, I feel, adapting it to what they need and the exercise selection because you wouldn't be doing 30 reps of eccentric work on hamstring because typically there's, well, there has been no research on mm. doing it on eccentric hamstring work. And when you look into literature and particularly Katsu, which is which BFR was created from, mm. is that they talk about its rep ranges and it's not four sets. It's actually three sets with the four set to be absolutely optional. And from going one step further, for me, training is about applying stress to the athletes, whether it's mechanical stress or metabolic stress, we're using the cuffs to offset that little bit of mechanical stress or mechanical load so mm. that you can get the training done whilst they're injured. And that's the other thing. These studies are done with subjects who are not injured. They're healthy. So you're programming according to what you have in front of you. And there's actually some great studies around three sets of 15 being effective. Therefore, is the 75 rep protocol the best? Well, you're doing what all good strength coaches do is is that you're slowly applying stress according to what the athlete can handle. And when you look at Katsu, is, is that's what it's about. It's about adapting. Well, my interpretation is that's adapting the training program or the training stress according to the ability of the athlete that you have in front of you. And therefore, picking out here, you're doing the reps and the sets according to the exercise and what the exercise really should be doing according to the contraction type and you're loading it a little bit more, which is totally fine because there's that one study on 70% RM and there's just not a lot of studies with higher load training. You know, yeah. the, the continuous versus in a minute argument. And initially, yes, I, I think continuous is fabulous because you need to build tolerance. Like all good training programs, we don't stick them into 10 sets of 10 squat or we don't do German volume on, on the first yeah. training yeah, session. Yeah. We build yeah. them up to the ability to be able to cope with it. And then also then adjusting the pressure accordingly because I always say you want your athletes to come back the next day and go, I had a really positive experience. If you're putting the pressure of the cuff right up from day one, that's just a little bit too tight. Once again, yeah. they have a negative experience. Will they come back or they may not believe that it's going to work, so they, they may not gravitate towards that. I think totally when you look at like your philosophy behind on how you introduce BFR, you have time then to read the athlete, read the response, and then push that forward. And then the last point before I get your thoughts on that is, is that the exercise selection is just spot on. And I keep saying this is how simple it is, is you're taking the exercises which are relevant to the athlete or the response that you want. And you're not really changing anything. You're just adapting the external load that you're doing. And then you're replacing that mechanical stress or the load with metabolic stress. Absolutely. Yeah. I think whatever the standard of the athlete, whether they're elite, junior, sub-elite, amateur, weekend warriors, in my opinion, is they're putting their trust in us. 
if they're trusting me and what I think will work, then you're trying to support them within that and you're trying to help them. But that trust needs to be reflected in how I treat them and how we go about introducing or using things like BFR rather than let's just put the cuffs on and pump them up to whatever crazy number and, you know, and watch all your veins pop out and things like that and watch, watch how kind of like vascular you go or whatever else. It's like we need to take care of them as, as much as there are obvious benefits from BFR training. And what we did with this sprint, we tried to use just the simple strength progressions and adaptations as we saw more control through bilateral hamstring work, then we could introduce unilateral hamstring work eccentrically. Then she was doing lots of yielding isometrics. We then introduced overcoming hamstring isometrics. And there was a standing hamstring curl machine there, the one where you bend over and you kick your heel to your bum, you know, classic hamstring curl. Obviously you get the prone versions as well. And so we just used that to do overcoming isometrics um, with the cuffs on again, once we felt she had that kind of level of control, because we, we were aware that it's one thing being able to, within isometrics, hold that position, you know, the body will adapt, the hamstrings will adapt to this, the stress of that. But when she's trying to put down um, as much kind of force to the ground as possible, her hamstring isn't just trying to yield, it's trying to overcome what's going on around it and the forces that are being produced. So we wanted to try and not, it's not an exact science, but we want to try and at least create an element of where she, she's trying to overcome with her hamstring some form of maximal force, as it were, in the sense of the, the load's not moving and she's pulling with her hamstring as much as possible, particularly in that near full knee extension area where she would present with the pain. So we introduced those things. We did them at five seconds, three sets of five seconds, then three sets of 10 and three sets of 15 with the cuffs on, you know, not all at the same time, but like, and that we didn't go any higher than that because even at 15 seconds, it wasn't becoming maximal for her. So we would have one session where she'd do them at five seconds maximal. And then her second session week, it might be a 10 second or a 15 second, but you know, we've tried to make sure within the, those time durations, there were some that were all out maximal and some were that were maximal, but for a, a slightly more extended period of time. They're two fabulous examples. And the reason why I love it is not only your protocol that you explained, but it gets away from the knee and the quad, so hamstring and also calf, so something a little bit different. Going back to this age group in particular, were there any obstacles to starting BFR and was there anything you changed in, in how you approached using it with this age group or was it straightforward? I think the main obstacle was more around education. So we talked about what we were doing and why and trying to help educate these student athletes because although we don't see their parents, their parents are still involved. They still come in for parents evenings because of their age. They still, you know, sometimes will contact me about what's going on within their son or daughter's competing and things like that. So we knew that whatever we were saying to them would get back to the parents uh, where it was relevant and in under 18s were signing consent forms anyway. And so were their parents. It was about education for us. Basically, this is what we want to try and do, but to help your child and we'll be feeding back and they'll be feeding back and we'll be regularly communicating within this. So my boss, I sat down with him and talked uh, about what we were bringing in and why and did a bit of an education stuff with, with the SNC team and then with the wider sport and fitness team that we have at the college. We basically look to introduce it and, and upskill from a wider understanding. So rather than it just being something odd happening in the corner with one person, with one coach, it was more mainstream as it were. And there was the basically the underpinning knowledge and understanding was was kind of spread really. 
I've not personally used it with with under 16s yet. I've trained many under 16s and many youth athletes from the ages of like eight, nine, ten, and well, that's not youth, and then into kind of 12, 13, 14, 15. With those age ranges, typically my my go to is always in the early stages to bring the parent in to to explain what I'm doing and why. Let them sit in on the odd bits of sessions, or sit down with them afterwards and talk about what we've done and why. And so, if I was ever to introduce BFR within that age range, so we have some swimmers, for example, who are range from the ages of twelve to to eighteen that we support. If I was ever to introduce it with some of them, it's not that anyone's told me that way, but that would be as a parent what I would feel more comfortable with if I was sat there and they're explaining what they're doing and why, and I can see what's going on and how they're communicating with my son or daughter and feel a bit more comfortable about it than just hearing that something weird happened uh, and then it wasn't very comfortable and they didn't and their son or daughter didn't understand why it was being done i think that's really important is that due diligence especially at that age or across all age groups but especially at that age group so that the message isn't being lost in translation from the young child to the parent and also then the parent can ask other questions because i know as a parent myself if my son or daughter was ever strength coached by someone else, I'd be wanting to be looking at the program because mm. that's what I do. And one yeah. thing that I want to, I guess, reinforce you said earlier that I thought was really good is that, you know, there's many fundamental movement patterns and strength and conditioning concepts that you cover first before you add BFR. The BFR is that additional layer on top of what you're doing in specific case studies. So you got to earn the right or unless it's something specific that you need because it's an Achilles injury or it's a hamstring injury or you're just not been able to budge beyond a certain point. And that's something that I thought was was really good. I just wanted to tease out for a moment there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, my confidence within using it within youth has you know I've used it several more times since. I'm pretty confident in how to use it and when to use it. But training age, I completely agree, is really important. And also, I would probably more be like, let's see if we let's use it if some of the other traditional ways of dealing with this issue haven't haven't worked. Whatever the whatever the issue is that's presented, rather than trying to train everyone with it all the time at this age range because they're still physically developing. The training age, as I mentioned earlier, is usually so young that they're not as, they are robust because they do so many hours of skills training. And that was some of my rationale as well, was they're already potentially, you know, playing hours and hours of football or soccer for you guys, you know, hours and hours of rugby or sprinting or running miles if they're endurance athletes. So I'm pretty sure they can cope with this because their bodies are taking an absolute hammering already, but because they're SNC training age may be younger. We're going to go in low and slow and build up to make sure that they can cope with this. Definitely. As we're going to wrap this up now, you've had two great examples, but I think what I also want to just reinforce this once again is your methodology on how you approach it. And for anyone, I think really take that into consideration that it's not about just slapping them on, pumping it up to the high pressure. It's about slowly, and this is across all ages really, but slowly introduce the pressure, slowly introduce the stress as you would with any good strength and conditioning program. As we just start to wrap this up, is there anything else that you think is really important to get out there with respect to BFR and in this age group? I guess the only thing I kind of touched on earlier was would be to, to not be afraid to start away from the 
traditional research sets and reps in the sense of to start with lower reps, even just one or two sets of eight to 10 body weight based and just build up slowly rather than thinking it has to be the magic 75 like you were talking about earlier. It doesn't have to be, or even with your in your isometrics, starting with, you know, five seconds, three seconds if it's overcoming or like 30 seconds with it, you know, just starting basically like you would if I was teaching someone who couldn't hold a plank, I'm not going to start at two minutes or whatever. We're going to start at 10 seconds or however long and build it up. So it's just not being afraid to build it up slowly. And I, I think with this age range, what you get is you got a lot of adaption quickly because they're developing, they're growing, they're, they're maturing. So, and, and I, it's anecdotal in my, but my opinion would be that the, the reason we saw such quick responses and such immediate responses is because of the effects of BFR and, and, and how good it is. But also this age range, they respond really quickly. They bounce back really quickly because they're really young. So I think you can see quicker turnaround. Um, not that you count with older age athletes, but I think you see a real quick turnaround with this age range. And, and that, if anything, should establish a confidence rather than a stress fracture or something, meaning it's, they're going to be out for months and months and months. We can see, you know, a hamstring tear or whatever it might be, Achilles problems, which typically can take quite a long time to get over. We can see quicker turnaround using BFR with this age range. For some male athletes, especially in this age group, is that their ability in the gym is sometimes by how much load they lift. And therefore, all they're concerned about is how much load. And if you can use BFR and lighten the load, you can then concentrate on technique. They can feel the correct muscle activation. They can feel it working. And they can actually visually see the changes in the mirror because I would assume for some males in that age group is being able to look good or being able to see that physical change has massive implications to the success of the program irrespective of whether it has that performance benefit or not and i spoke about this with in a previous episode with matt ham who's an, another snc coach in australia about this is a, a concept is systematically is that a better way of teaching the, because you can concentrate on technique and certain exercises and get rid of the load. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's it, that's where it has a great um, a great fit within this age range, rather than it being something that's only for over 18s and a no-go. I think it has a great fit, exactly what you just said there. Fabulous. This has been absolute pockets of gold, not just from a BFR, but I think about how to approach strength training for athletes in this age group it's been wonderful no problem thank you very much if anyone wants to get a hold of you i do know you're on instagram so fire away with anything that you're working with or any social media handles that you want to get out there uh yeah if uh people want to connect i'm on instagram my uh, username is welshnaith underscore coach Alternatively, there's also my email, which I'm very happy for people to have, uh, Norris at burnley.ac.uk. If anyone, not that I claim to be a, a, an expert on all these things, but if anyone wants to throw some questions over or just kind of like thrash some, some things out on this, I'm always up for kind of like discussing that and exploring this area further and the benefits it has for the athletes we all work with. Perfect. And I'll put them in the show notes. So if you didn't get to copy them down, you can just click on the links that will be in the notes with the podcast or on my website. And all the best. We're approaching Christmas on this episode, and this will be the last episode for this year, and then we're going to head back into next year. And I'm, I'm trying to line up one more guest who's actually used BFI in a much younger age group. 
as I said in my last podcast, I did some passive BFR with my 11-year-old daughter at the time who had a stress reaction in her lumbar, and we had some really great results there. And if I can get this guest on, I think it's going to really help round out this picture about using BFR in these much younger age groups. But once again, Nath, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Cavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump. 